Well, I'm here with David Feinberg, Senior Vice President, Chief Marketing and Communications Officer for the Mount Sinai Health System and, as if that wasn't enough, <laughs> Dean for the Marketing and Communications <laughs> for the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. But, I mean, your, your title really does speak to, um, I think, a lot of what you've talked about with being both a marketer and then, you know, seeing your role as an educator as well. So tell me a little bit about, tell me a little bit about the CMO part. What does being CMO um, at, Mount, at Mount Sinai Health Systems right now mean? So thank you, uh, Tanya, for the opportunity to uh, to answer some questions, hopefully, hopefully well. So I ask myself that every day uh, in terms of what it means, because it, 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 in some sense, it changes. In some sense, it, it remains the same. So essentially, what I'm about is Mount Sinai Health System, just quick background, is one of the large, you know, one of your large, complicated academic medical systems centers around the country. Uh, we've got about nine billion in in revenue. We have we see we got 42,000 employees, we've got 7,000 doctors. I mean, we're just this huge thing. And we have eight hospitals and a medical school and ambulatory. So we're this monster, right? And my job is to take the strategies and and uh, abilities of communications and marketing and apply those to the mission and vision of the institution and help advance what it is about. And essentially what we're about is improving healthcare for the community and for the world. That's one way to talk about it. So we're always trying, and, and that's broad. So it's about provision of healthcare. It's about researching new new ways to make people healthier or keep people from getting illness. And it's about education of the next generation of healthcare leaders and also empowering those people to make these tremendous innovations and discoveries that we do. So we do everything from take care of somebody's sore throat to invent a new way to predict kidney disease, to start a company that's using AI to apply you know, those types of learnings to help doctors do their jobs better. And it's, it's the full range of that. So my job is to use marketing communications techniques to help the organization do what it does. And how much of um, what you're doing around marketing communications is also sort of um, educating internally too around what marketing can do for the organization? Because I know you're in the nonprofit space, but you're also you know, out there. Like how do you balance the internal and the external? It's a it's a, it's a real uh, uh, challenge and something that we do a lot of. So by by uh, way of contrast, you know, simple. My first my first job out of business school was Procter and Gamble. You don't have to explain to Procter and Gamble what marketing is. Okay, it's a marketing driven. It's probably they me. sit you down and explain to you. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's like yeah, I'm learning from that. You're not telling them oh what's marketing. With places like Mount Sinai, marketing is not a core function. Right, it's a it's an ancillary function, or it's line. It's it's staff versus line. Is one other way to explain it. So, you know, what does marketing have to do with a not for profit health system? Why do we need it? And so, I do a lot of education within the organization about what the role of marketing is, because when they when they actually think about it, uh, for, to a lot of people. And these are really smart people. Like we got people way on the right hand side of the bell curve. People a couple hundred IQ points higher than me. Most are mostly the people I'm dealing with uh, when it comes to kind of the leadership level. And you're explaining to them 
what the role of marketing is and how it can help do that. But it's not intuitive to them. They often they think of marketing as advertising, and then and then brochures. You know, it's advertising, it's brochures, and yeah, we have a website, uh, and that's about it. So we're I've done a lot of education here about what marketing is and the full breadth and depth of what it is we can do. And they've, uh, you know, to their credit, been very receptive and saying, oh, wow, that's great. Now let's see what we can do with it. And, you know, you just talked about the contrast of marketing as advertising. I think that's um, that's something that many marketers have had to face, particularly as this pandemic has played out for different mm-hmm. reasons. Um, so how do you define the difference between marketing and advertising, particularly in the context of your role? Well, one of the things I do is I go, I've given what I call marketing 101. And I talk so about- you talked about like your roadshow, yeah, right? Yeah. So we, I do a little roadshow and I talk about a definition of marketing for the organization. I talk about a, a very simple model. And then I talk about paid, shared, owned, and earned. And then I relate that to the organization. So I've got, I've got, I've got public affairs and, 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 and crisis comms. I've got internal communication. I have marketing. I've got digital. And then a, a group that supports all of that. So we're structured along those lines so that people get it. And then I'd like to use a lot of, a lot of, um, of, of examples. So one of the things I'll say to them is like right now we're in the middle of developing a new branding campaign. So I say to them, the branding campaign is about reputation and understanding what the brand stands for. It's not making the phones ring. And they say, well, why are we doing it? Because it eventually will help make the phones ring. Okay, well, number one. Number two, the having a strong brand has many other benefits to it besides just quote unquote volume. And the example I use is when you think of BMW, I love car examples, think of BMW. BMW is the ultimate driving machine. And they talk about establishing the brand as the ultimate driving machine. But then you're going to see BMW Mount Kisco 328i now for $399. You know, you can lease it this month for $399 and no money down. That's making the phones ring. But the reason you're interested in the in the BMW 325i is because it's the ultimate driving machine. So the same thing is going to be true here. There's going to be an image and understand what Mount Sinai is. And then you'll choose us for care when you have the need or the opportunity because of what the brand represents, in addition to what we're doing to you functionally. Yeah. And they and they can understand that. But it's it's a new concept for many people. And how did that sort of play out, I guess, over the, the year that we've just had? I mean, never was information more important, never did a community, I guess, need um, to look to healthcare, you know, more than, than we have in the past year. Um, did that shift your approach to marketing or how did you how did you sort of tackle um, 2020? Right. Well, the tools are the tools, but the objectives changed because of the crisis. Hmm. So we had to shift our focus to different things than we would have normally under, under regular circumstances, both by necessity and by desire. The necessity was, so for example, at one point in time, um, this by contrast, today in the Mount Sinai Health System, we have give or take 200 or so COVID patients. At the height of the pandemic in April, a year ago, we had 2000. So it was everything we were doing all the time. It was just a humongous thing. And so marketing communications was focused on helping the organization deal with those problems. 
What are the rules? What are we doing? How do we get this? How do we transfer? So it's a lot of internal communication initially. And then as, and, and, and the necessity was they, they actually ended, uh, you know, uh, any kind of care that wasn't vital care, you know, so, so, you know, so, so-called discretionary care, or whatever that they, we weren't even allowed to provide. It. So then we had to get that messaging out. You can't come here for this. You can only come here for these things. And as that, went away and we got back to normal. Now you have to change your messaging to it's safe, safe to come here. Cause we were the center, we were the epicenter of the epicenter. So why right. would patients want to come to a place where they might get COVID? So it's safe to return. We, we know how to return. And then the message gets into, all right, don't put your healthcare on hold. It's, you should not, not want to, you need to get back to doing what you need to do because delaying healthcare. So we, so we went from crisis to safety, to to uh, uh, performing you know, healthcare, to get getting you the actual you know uh, services that you need, and that that was kind of the flow of things that happened over the last year or so. And what was that continuum like for you personally? Because on the one hand, um, you're sort of out front and centre. You've sort of got the responsibility for messaging for a really critical health system. But you're also going through this, right, as a leader, as a human, you know, as a family member, et cetera. What, what was that like for you? It was, it was both challenging, exhilarating, frightening and rewarding. It was all of those things. So at one point in time, we, the last time I, the last time I was in my physical office mm. was March eighth a year ago. So I haven't, I haven't even been back yet, really. Wow, you haven't even set I, foot. I know. I could go back. I could start to go back now, and some people have. Um, and so readjusting to that workflow, and then for the first, I would say a solid ten weeks through March, April, and beginning of May, maybe even through May, it was it was seven days a week. There was no let up because there was just so much happening and so much that needed to be done. And we were actually in what's called emergency management structure. So I actually was reporting to somebody in this emergency management structure with whom I was coordinating communications wasn't my normal reporting relationship to the CEO in order to manage the crisis. So from a personal standpoint, it was, I had never done that before. So it was a real challenge for me to say, okay, this is new. I have to learn how to do this. I've never been in this role before in this situation. What can I do? How can I use my skills, abilities, and experience to help guide the team? Unfortunately, I had a great team under me who had some of some of whom had been through it, some not. The organization had been not. Nobody's been through COVID. Exactly. But, what we went through. but hospitals go through crises all the time. There's a there's a crisis. I wouldn't say a crisis a week, but it's not uncommon to have some kind of a, you know, water main break or a outbreak or an emergency situation or whatever. You know, we as healthcare institutions have to be ready to handle those things all the time. Mm. But even our, even our, we have a, a head of emergency services who came from government, uh, who was part of Homeland Security. He'd been through some really tough stuff, you know, the, the big hurricanes and stuff. And he said, he, he, he advised, said, understand, nobody really knows what to do here. We've never been through this as a country, let alone as an organization. So he was giving us a lot of reassurance that you're, 
your sense of uncertainty is to be under is to be appreciated. The other thing we did at Mount Sinai, which I'm really proud of, is we set up a center for stress resilience and and personal growth pretty early on to provide our staff and the community the support they need to deal with the emotional consequences of this crisis. And so we're doing a lot of work helping people figure out how to recover, not just physically, but also emotionally from what we've been through. But for me personally, it was one of the one of the most greatest challenges, highest stress, but most rewarding times of my career, I'd have to say. I'm very proud of what we did as an organization and hopefully uh, helped contribute to, to that. Well, and I think even amid all of that, you also welcomed a granddaughter, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yes. I had my my first granddaughter came uh, arrived last July, and it's uh, it's been terrific. She she says gives you that sunshine in the middle of the clouds sometimes. Right, absolutely. Um, one one theme that jumped out to me as I was preparing for our chat today, and sort of looking over my notes from when we'd last talked, but also you know doing my research for you. Um, is the central theme of innovation. And, um, you know, you talked a little bit about uncertainty, so maybe I'm going to change that and say innovation amidst uncertainty. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, you were a part of the first organisation to enable access to electronic data online. Um, you worked at the first company in America to store cord blood stem cells. Um, so th- there's this real theme of firsts and innovations as I sort of look to understand more about you. Can you talk about your approach to innovation and how, you know, how that sort of shifted over, over your career? That's a, a That's a great question. Let's see if I can summarize it a little bit. Uh, going back to my early days, um, when I when I was at, I went from Procter & Gamble to Clairol and soon at Clairol, I was involved with new products. So that's when it started because if mm-hmm. you're going to do new products, you have to learn about how to kind of look at things freshly and differently. And it's not, it's not taking a brand and keeping it or growing it, but it's developing whole new brands. And so that was, that was exciting to me. And then oh, when I left when I left Claro, I went to an to uh, an organization that was also a kind of an internal startup. It was a big pharmaceutical company that didn't have a consumer division, so we helped start that. And I I found myself just drawn to the challenge of that as really just interesting to me. It's just like, all right, how do you start something from scratch? And that's where I got the bug, if you will. And so I've had that bug my whole career of looking at how can we do things that haven't been done before in ways that haven't been done before? It's just something that I find fascinating and interesting to the point where when something starts, when it starts being real, I want to move on to the next new thing. Uh, And I always challenge myself to think about how to innovate and how to do new things, even in kind of more routine assignments or routine sections. So, um, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's sort of how how I how I like to think about it. No, it sure does. It, it it sounds like there's an element of being a sucker for punishment. As soon as the thing that you've built gets stable and good and ready for growth, you're uh, you know you sort of you're ready to move to the next uh, the next big thing. Although I was, um, I'll say, I'll say, I was almost 20 years at New York Presbyterian, but the newness there was they did they were a new organization that didn't have a marketing capability. So I came in and tried to help the organization learn and establish marketing as a core competence uh, within it and and 
and um, I enjoyed that a lot. You know, starting literally, literally starting to define what marketing is, and then here at Mount Sinai, even though they had some marketing, it hadn't been organized the same way. So I viewed it as a startup. I came in and said, "This is a startup, and we're going to have a startup mentality." Even though I inherited a large group of people, let's think about things. Let's 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 think about how to change things, how to do things differently in ways that are adaptive and responsive to the circumstances we see today. And also, you know, if anything's changed more rapidly than marketing or marketing technology or marketing capabilities, or, uh, you know, it's one, it's such a rapid cycle of new innovation that we have to be able to adapt to and understand and use. When you look back um, throughout your career, what do you see as perhaps the most influential decision that you made, either to do something or to not do something? That's a great question. Yeah, well, I'll go. I'll go way back. It first started when I when I graduated. When I graduated business school. I had the opportunity. I had three opportunities. I was one of the least successful interviewers in the history of Kellogg. I had. 30 interviews and three offers. That's not a good, that's not a good track record. One in some 10 fin- is not good. I didn't know. No, that. <laughs> no. Some, some of the, some of the finest companies in America rejected me um, uh, at first sight. But anyway, but the three offers I did get, I had Procter and Gamble, Leo Burnett and GTE, which was one of the big, which actually, uh, you know, wasn't, was a major phone company at the time. And so I made the decision to go with Procter because I was told that you can always go from, from client to agency, but you can't go from agency to client. So that started me on the path to, you know, CPG, consumer packaged goods, product management, which then has continued. And then, you know, a third of the way through my career, I veered into, uh, into healthcare. And that's been the other big, big pivotal decision is to <clears throat> devote the, devote most of my career to healthcare, <clears throat> which has been very, very, very rewarding <clears throat> because, excuse me, because, sorry about that, <clears throat> because, you know, it's great to sell toothpaste and shampoos and, you know, all product. I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not putting down any products and they all create value for customers and they employ people and it's all good. But how many, how, how white, how much whiter do your teeth really have to be at some point? <laughs> or how much more, how much shinier does your hair need to be? So when you're, when you're, when you're working in a in in the healthcare field, there's no question about relationship to mission and value of what you're doing. I know every day that what I do to help this organization is really important, and so that and that's just important to me to be part of something like that. So it's it's been tremendously rewarding from that standpoint. Well, and and you're really talking about, I guess, that journey to um, perhaps you've always been mission-led or purpose-led, but it sounds like there's just there was a defining moment where that became front and centre for you. How did you come to realise that? Like I feel, you know, probably everyone, you know, to some degree wants to believe that, you know, the time that they're spending on earth has meaning but how did you how did you decide to place that front and centre of, you know, what you decided to do with uh, with your career? Well, it's a combination of opportunity. I had the opportunity uh, to join this startup uh, um, uh, internal new business within a pharmaceutical company. And it wasn't after until after I got there that I realized, oh, there's another aspect of this. 
So really, that was just opportunity. I went from selling mm -hmm. shampoo to selling, uh, you know, OTC pharmaceuticals. And then it started to dawn on me that there's more, this could be more to it than this. So, so I, I, I kind of adapted or adopted the thought that this would be, this would be good to do both from the standpoint of my career development, but also aligning my sense of value and what I'm contributing to the world. And so then, then the next step was this, uh, this company that innovated cord blood stem cells. And I started to get involved with what that means and understanding it. And, uh, and, and so, so it's a combination of, of opportunity that then was, that then informed more, more kind of uh, purposeful decisions. And then also, I guess I've got some ability, I, I do have this kind of ability to translate medical things into simple terms. And you just either have that or you don't, I don't know why I have it, but I'm, I'm told that you're good at taking, so I can learn like what's going on and then say, all right, what you mean is this, right? They go, yeah, that's it. And that's how you get things into marketing terms that people can really understand and that you can leverage as ideas and claims. And so it's just, it's just a proclivity, you know, somewhere in my Myers-Briggs, it works out. I don't know. And if you might have, if you'd had the opportunity to pick one superpower, that may not have been the one that you would have picked out of everything on earth, but it's nevertheless a, a very important superpower, particularly in the yeah, no, uh, I wouldn't have, I would have never, we've had. Yeah, yeah, but it, it, it's, 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 uh, it's been good. It's been, it's been very helpful to me. Well, and, and knowing that, um, you know, much to my chagrin, I learned when we first chatted that you do not um, intend on applying that superpower to becoming a social media influencer. Um, right. You are nevertheless um, working across an organisation that did significant social media outreach and activity both with live video and, and embracing a lot of these new formats. Can you talk a little bit about like how you approached that and, and sort of what gave you, I guess, the courage to really um, innovate in that way, you know, as, as the country was going through such a crisis? Well, I see. Uh, yeah. So let me just speak a little bit to your comment. I, I am not personally drawn to it. Okay. It's not my thing. I will Having not be finding that, you on TikTok with no, your I'm, top yeah, I'm not, tips. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't engage. I probably to a fault. I probably should do more because I, I could use my platform to advance. And we've talked, I've talked to our head of social media, Chloe Politis, who's brilliant about getting me out there a little bit more. So there might, that, all right, to hold that To thought. be continued, we're going to show this. Okay. Maybe. We'll see. It, but it's not I my nature. I heard a yes. I'm just saying, I heard a yes. Yeah. So. yeah. But, but I recognize the power of those platforms to engage with customers, with patients, with families, with constituents. And therefore, I empower the people who do know what they're doing to do it. And I ask them to innovate and I ask and I try to try to give resources, although we're, we're still not doing enough. And there's been a lot of actual innovation in the social media space in healthcare, And we are trying to be on the forefront of that. And we're looking also to different strategies for how to do it. So one one example during the crisis is we did we did a number of Facebook lives yeah, and we I said, those. what is it that people want to know now? And who do we have who can talk to? So we're blessed here at Mount Sinai with experts, amazing experts who not only are smart about what it is they do, but can articulate. So for example, we put somebody out 
who talked about if you're if you're elderly, what how do you have to think about it? We put it out. If you're pregnant and you're concerned about COVID, what do you think? And we got million, we got numbers, millions, you know, cumulatively, yeah. millions of viewers uh, of in, engaged in that content. So I can't think of another vehicle that could do that that way with that kind of with that kind of impact. We also have a terrific podcast series, and there, there's two streams to it. One is one is called Road to Resilience, which is helping give instruction and information and inspiration for people who have been through tough things and have come through it well. And that comes from a core confidence that we have in our, our Dean, Dr. Dennis Charney, is one of the leading experts in resilience. He's made a part of his career on it. So we build on that to create, and we got great engagement there. And then the latest one we launched a couple of months ago is called Really Smart People. And the idea is to just hear these people as human, as when I say humans, of course they're humans, but to, to learn about them as people, but also allow them to share their incredible knowledge with the public. So it's it's kind of fascinating conversations with people who are just uh, you know so really smart. And and it's it, if I encourage you to tune in, I think you'd enjoy them. We get we get great response to those. No, absolutely. And I mean, I remember that was one of the first things that, um, you know, looking at a lot of your digital presence and social presence, one of the things that actually made me want to reach out because there was just something so different um, going on there. Um, so last question then for you, and I feel like I could talk to you for hours, but uh, Thank you. um, but you've also got, you know, you've also got education and healthcare to go out there and do. Um, what's, what's next for you? Like, I know that we're not nearly through this crisis. There's still a lot to do, but like, what is the next mountain to climb for you as you look out to 2021 and 2022? Well, right now, how do we transition back to the core of what we were doing before COVID. So how do we support? There, there are so many things that the institution was involved with. So we're going to continue to, on the COVID stream, we can't ignore that. That's going to be around for a while. So for an, another just quick example, we, we opened the first center for post-COVID care here at Mount Sinai. So the people who are having these symptoms that nobody expected we're really looking into that, both treatment and research. So that's that's going to continue. But then healthcare is at a point of transformation with respect to what it can do and how it's doing it. Using AI, using machine learning, using deep analysis, predictive analytics, that kind of, so if you combine that kind of computational analytical capability with our knowledge of the human genome, you're putting those things together and you're going to reinvent how we think about all sorts of things with healthcare. And the other thing I really should mention is we are, we are very much leaning in to the disequities in healthcare and trying to resolve them. So we have a center for health equities research, an institute for health equities research that we started in the middle of COVID. Again, give my institution, these are not my ideas, this is what the institution does. So try and actually research and understand where these inequities are coming from and directly address them. So in the future, we can have not just better healthcare, but equitable healthcare for a broad-based uh, population. We sit, those of you who know Manhattan geography, on, on one side of one of our, we have eight hospitals, so we're everywhere. Our, in, in our largest hospital is on Fifth Avenue, and, and one side of it is Fifth Avenue, but the back of it is actually a housing project. 
in Harlem. So we sit at the corner yeah. of some of the wealthiest geography and the poorest. Yeah. And we're very, very proud of, 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 of giving all of those people access to that care. Access to healthcare. And, yeah. and, and just one, one quick anecdote. We just finished the world's first tracheal transplant, successful tracheal transplant. Just happened. Wow. Congratulations. The woman, the, yeah, the woman who got the benefit of that is uh, African-American woman, a blue collar, uh, comes from an from a underserved neighborhood. And she came to us with this problem. She hadn't been able to breathe well for six years. She had had an intubation that went badly and, and, and damaged her trachea. Then it kept getting worse and worse and worse to the point where she could barely breathe. And now she's recovering from the transplant very well and doing very well, fortunately. But that, there's nothing, you know, she got, I can't even imagine the cost of that care for her. And that's, we didn't think twice about it. We had to do it for her and also to advance the field. So that tracheal transplant becomes yet another part of our transplant armamentarium, in addition to heart and kidney and lung. Now, someday, and it's still <laughs> nothing routine about it. Mm. It is really, really challenging work. And it took decades of our leaders and others working together to figure it out. And we look forward to the next one and the next one, and hopefully someday making it something that is much more available. But that's an example of, you know, whatever advance we can, we make it available to anybody, regardless of ability to pay or socioeconomic status or whatever. And I'm so proud to be part of a place that does that does just that. It's incredible. I mean, there's just so many milestones that we've got to hit as a society. And this is just, I can't think of one that is more pivotal and, and more critical, particularly coming out of COVID. Um, well, amazing. I Again, I feel like I could, I have so many more questions left, Thank but you. we're going to have to keep them for the future. We can have Thank another you session so if, you, if you wanted some time. I'm happy we to do it. We may have to. <laughs> and it's Thank a pleasure, so to, much, pleasure to meet you. And, and I hope this was helpful to your audience. So take care. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. 